Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upburnfrisco.com. Good morning, friends. It is truly wonderful to, to be together this morning and, and celebrate what Christ has done. And uh, I'm particularly, particularly excited about days like this because we've spent the last few weeks kind of leading up to this moment. The, the practice of Lent is re-preparing our hearts to be amazed, intoxicated, overwhelmed all over again by Christ's work on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so I feel the gravity of today. You know, preachers around the world, this is like Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday. There's a lot of faces I don't recognize. Welcome. I, I love you as a brother, and I'm honored that you came to worship with us this morning. And something that I, I love um, to make us aware of is that none of us have to come cleaned up. None of us have to come uh, ready or prepared or think that we have things together or our ducks in a row to walk through the doors of a place like this because Jesus has always said, everyone who thirsts, all you who are weary, ho, oh, anyone who thirsts can come and partake for free. And so we're so glad that you're here wherever you're at in the journey of life, in your place in faith. You have a seat at this table. And we're honored that you came to worship with us. And, and happy Resurrection Sunday. <laughs> happy Easter. Parents in here, anybody doing like Easter eggs this year? You know, it's pretty fun. It's more of an investment this year than in years past with the price of eggs, right? <laughs> Back in my day, eggs and teepee were so plentiful, we used to throw them at the houses of our enemies. <laughs> now, <laughs> I got an amen from Joseph. <laughs> now we got a budget for those things. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you guys know why Jesus was banned from every jewelry store? Because he always breaks every chain. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I really love to come together and have fun. Uh, church should be fun. If we're not having fun, we might be doing it wrong because didn't he say, I've come to give you fullness of joy. I've come to give you life to the full joy is actually something that should mark Christians. The world should be very curious about why we are so happy. You know, the world isn't beating down the doors of the sad, morose churches. <laughs> Didn't he come and give us? the greatest message, the greatest realization, the best news ever. You know, ever since the fall, we've had to deal with this thing. It's the most fearful thing that any of us can think about or experience this side of eternity. We've had to deal with this thing called death. And God has lovingly and meticulously figured out all the time how to 
bring life out of death. God has worked in a way to actually use death and bring beauty from the ashes of death through the power of resurrection. But it's so often that in between the dying and the resurrection that we experience doubt, that our faith is tested, right? It's in between the pain that we experience and the healing that is coming that we can get angry. It's in between the, the breaking and the breakthrough that we can lose hope and even launch complaints at our good father. You guys know that it's possible to have an accusation against God, right? In the place of pain, in the place of delay, in the place of hope deferred. I can think of no one else who probably experienced the, the, the deepest weight of pain and hope deferred and delay than the apostles and and Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, Mary the mother of Jesus, then after the death of Jesus. Most of them just, they just didn't get it. And even if they had a hope or a, a, a grain of understanding about the coming resurrection, their best friend was still dead, wasn't he? How testing of their faith could be that moment? How Easy it would be in those moments to have an accusation against God. And whether we are aware of it or not, in this very moment, we might have grievances against the Father. We might even have God on trial in our mind right now. But has God ever done anything wrong? Has God ever once mishandled our hearts? Has he ever abandoned any man or any woman? See, these accusations, these grievances or suspicions that we can develop about him, they're able to exist simply because we believe a lie about him. There is some sort of deception that has creeped in and it's, it's even possible after Jesus comes, he's such an awesome guy, right? Jesus is like the man. Like everyone just, they were so enamored with the words that would spill from his lips. They couldn't believe how he so freely loved. They couldn't, it was so amazing how he would heal the hurting, how he would stoop down for the woman caught in adultery, how he would make himself visible to people standing on the shore so they could get a glimpse of God. He was so amazing. But the Father, we might not have the same kind of ideas about the Father, almost like a kid who thinks that one of the parents loves him more than the other. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Maybe, you, maybe you've all, like, occasionally thought that like, Jesus is the, is the kind one and, and, and God is the just, and the Father is the justice one, and it's like this good cop, bad cop kind of routine going in the heavens, right? Wouldn't it be amazing for us to trust the Father, for us to love the Father, for us to run to the Father the same way we would for the Son? You know, for many years, this was me. I could more easily trust Jesus than, than Abba. I thought 
that Jesus somehow convinced dad to love me or accept me. I, I thought I had a patient and merciful big brother, but a temperamental father. I thought the only reason that he tolerated me is because Jesus snuck me into heaven past the judging eyes of the father. Like, a, like, a, like I crashed a party that I wasn't invited to, but I knew the guy at the door. <laughs> but if the host you know, sniffed me out, then I'd be in trouble. He'd be like, where's your invitation, you know? I thought that the blood changed the father's ability to see me, but really the blood changed my ability to see the father. There's no greater place in all of history where the love of God was revealed than on the cross. Jesus only did what he saw the father doing, right? Was that temporarily suspended when he laid down on that cross for us? Or did he see that that's where the father was also? I thought that somehow the blood was so that the father would be appeased, but I didn't quite realize that his blood healed me of my sin disease so that I could rightly see the father again. See, no matter what anyone tells you, we have never seen sinners in the hands of an angry God, but we certainly saw God in the hands of angry sinners. Did he not submit himself to everything that we could possibly throw at him? I believe that the greatest deliverance the church will ever experience is realizing this most incredible truth and that all of our mistrust or distrust and fear and accusations towards God will melt away as we see that God the Father is perfectly revealed in God the Son. So these lies are what cause us to, for these lies are what enable accusations against God to exist. And if we have some sort of foundational lie deep within our psyche that is keeping us from running to the Father with trust and affection, then the only way to fix it is to look right at Jesus. I believe that every dysfunction in life is solved by looking right at Jesus. We all with unveiled faces are now beholding his glory. And what happens when we behold his glory? Rightly are you famous, you're shining, it's contagious. We look to you, cause you're radiant, and when we look to you, we are radiant. His beauty is contagious. We look at him and things are straightened out in us and the shining that he possesses, possesses us. But unfortunately, we often, instead of going to the root cause that's bringing these symptoms of fear and mistrust in our life, we try to deal with the symptoms. We try to deal with this fear, this mistrust, and we end up doing things in our own effort to try to please God so that we don't have to fear him anymore. That is the essence of the spirit of religion. It's like taking your car to the mechanic because your brakes don't work. And the mechanic says, I couldn't fix your brakes, so I made your horn louder. Good luck out there. 
You're like, but that's, that's not the disease. That's <laughs> we got to fix the brakes. Often the most powerful strongholds of doubt or fear that we have towards God come from a misinterpretation or a misreading of scripture. And there might not be any more powerful or famous scripture that can potentially bring this doubt or fear to the Father than the one that we find in Psalm 22. And let me tell you why. Because the beginning of Psalm 22 sounds like this. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And it seems as if in this moment, Jesus on the cross is stating a truth that he has been forsaken by the Father, that somehow in that moment, different than any other moment, the Trinity, which has always been in perfect unity, communion, other-centered, self-giving love, this trinity of love in this one moment broke down. Psalm 22 goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me? How many of us have said words like that? How many of us in our moments of pain, in our moments of breakthrough, stepped into that very accusation ourselves. Where are you, God? Where are you? Oh my God, this is verse two. Oh my God, I cry by day and you don't answer and by night and I find no rest, yet you're wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. I want to submit to you right here and right now that this is one of the most important and prophetic psalms revealing the very moments up to Christ's death. Verse three says, yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel, Jesus, as he walked into Jerusalem, walked upon the praises of his people, didn't he? They wouldn't even let his donkey's hooves touch the ground. They laid their cloaks and the palm branches down, which is how we get Palm Sunday from last Sunday. Verse four, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And here is the comparison now entering in. You're good to other people. You, you save other people, but what about me? I'm a worm. I'm not a man. I'm scorned. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And this is in quotations, right? He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. This is a fulfillment of Matthew 27, 39. When Jesus is on the cross, it says all who pass by hurled their insults, their mockery at him, shaking their heads. They wag their heads, mocking him. And they're saying things like, you've saved others. Let's see you save yourself. Yeah, go ahead and put your, your life into his hands. Let's see how that worked out for you. He's abandoned you. Come on down and save yourself. This is verse nine of Psalm 22. Yet 
You are he that took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. And on you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. These words are just so richly describing the life of Christ. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Guys, this is a perfect picture of Jesus being surrounded by his enemies on the cross. His very murderers, the people that schemed against him, are there just smiling, enjoying the fact that they've had this victory, mocking him. The corrupt religious leaders and the corrupt government system of the day has put him on that cross. In verse 14, it says, I'm poured out like water. What happened when the spear went into Christ's side? Water. And all my bones, all of my bones are out of joint. This is actually a perfect description of what happens when someone is crucified. They're, they're pinned so far apart at their, that they... All of their bones come out of joint. They're hanging there. My heart is like wax. More often than not, doctors say that if someone was crucified, they would die from a heart attack, from the rib cage clenching in and the terror of it all and how hard their body is working to stay alive. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pop shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. What did Jesus say on the cross? I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have they have pierced my hands and feet. Why would David put that in a song? He's never had his hands and feet pierced. The only explanation for this incredible verse is that, Jesus, is that David stepped into a prophetic moment and saw his Savior on the cross. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, many years before crucifixion would even be invented. People weren't crucified in David's day. It wasn't a thing yet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. We don't know of any place in scripture where this happened to David. So again, David is prophetically singing about a future event. This was fulfilled, this prophecy is fulfilled when Jesus, none of his bones were broken. When the, the, centuri- when the Roman soldiers came to make sure the other uh, people on the cross, the two thieves were dead, they broke their legs, right? Because that got rid of their ability to stay suspended and, and breathe in air. But with Jesus, his legs weren't broken. His side was pierced with a spear. And they cast lots for his clothing. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, don't be far from me. 
And, and you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's talking about Jesus entering the congregation of the heavenly realm, praising God in the midst of his brothers. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has, what? Not hidden his face from him. <laughs> he has heard his cry. Did the father hide his face from Jesus on the cross, guys? Was the cross the moment that the Trinity ditched itself, <laughs> imploded upon itself. John 10, 30 says it like this. Jesus is actually assuring everyone before he gets to the cross that he won't be abandoned. It says, I and the Father are one. John 14, 11, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. John 16, 32, this is a really powerful one because Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. He says to his buddies, you will all leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. John 8, 28 through 29. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. Amen. Have you guys ever heard the idea that you know, for the father turned his back on the son, on the cross, and that was the moment, like, where, where does this come from? And then if, if the father can turn his back on the son, how dark does my life have to become before the father turns his back on me? But you might be thinking in this moment, but wait, wait Jeremy, it, doesn't scripture say that God can't look on evil? That God can't look at sins? There actually is a verse that says something just like that. It's Habakkuk 1.13. It says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate it. Well, that kind of just like breaks down the whole purpose of this sermon, doesn't it? That just ends the whole point. We've, we've made a doctrine that God can't look on evil because of this verse. Unfortunately, so many people stopped there and didn't read the second half of the verse, which says, why then do you? Habakkuk in this moment is not giving us a doctrinal dissertation. He is launching his complaint from his view. He's embodying the same complaint that many of us have had. Why? Where are you? What is going on, God? I thought this about you, but this is different than what I thought about you. 
Guys, if we believe that God is too holy to look upon sin, then we have the biggest problem at all, and that's that Jesus can't be God. Didn't he look upon all of our sin and then overlook it? If God can't look on sin, then why would, was Satan able to come in, into his very presence in Job 1? Did Jesus ever, like when he was invited to a party with a bunch of sinners and questionable characters, did he, did he arrive at the party, stand at the door and say, I can't come in there until you sacrifice a goat so that my holiness isn't tarnished by your wretchedness? He crawled into our darkest darkness. See, God can't turn his face from the wicked any more than the sun can hide from the blind. He's there, whether you see him or not. We came up with this idea that the father abandoned the son on the cross, and it's just, it's just completely mixed up anti-Trinitarian theology, and it, and it means that it just breaks down the unity of the father and son as if Jesus was bartering with the father to, to forgive us. When the, it's as if they weren't fully convinced, the three of them in the same plan to redeem their children back into their heart. I've heard it said that, you know, when, but that when the darkness came, when Jesus was on the cross and, and, and all of, it covered all of Israel and that earthquake came, that, well, that, that was the moment when the father turned his back on the son. But the exact opposite is true. What do we know about earthquakes in the Bible? What do we know about darkness from the Old Testament? Earthquakes tear down walls, they open prisons, and they happen when angels come close. Elijah, when he experienced an earthquake, that was right before he heard the still small voice of God, wasn't it? God was coming closer and closer and closer. His heart was being revealed more and more and more. In that darkness, it says in Psalm 18:9, he parted the heavens and came down, dark clouds were under his feet. Psalm 97, 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Deuteronomy 5, 22, these words the Lord spoke to you in the assembly of the mountain in the midst of fire, the cloud and the thick darkness. The Father is revealed so often with this darkness, these clouds covering his feet. This is the moment when the Father has come closer to earth than ever before since the garden. I believe that the, the Father used Jesus' last heartbeat to trigger an earthquake. And what happened when that earthquake came? Tombs were open and dead people came alive and walked around. Could you imagine that moment for the enemy, how terrifying. Like, I think we've made a mistake, guys. <laughs> this idea of the father deserting or turning his back on Jesus on, on the cross is more pervasive than we may think, and it's a bigger problem than we might think also. It sneaked its way, it snuck its way <laughs> into even so many, so many of our songs. One final breath he gave as heaven looked away. I don't ever want to sing that again. Heaven was never closer 
than in that moment. Now, I, I mean, I can, if, you, if you're just thinking that maybe it's like angels were just like, oh my gosh, I can't even watch this moment. Like they're covering their faces with their eyes. That's okay. But like, <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ. When? On the cross. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. He was reconciling us to himself. Jesus says something like this, when the son of man is lifted up, I will draw all men to me. You know that word draw? It's not, you know, it, it's cool to think of it as like God is like wooing, he's like alluring, like that's okay, but that word draw is actually the same word that they used when with the miraculous catch of fish they had to drag the fish into the boat, drag the fish to shore. Are you guys catching what I'm saying? The son of man is lifted up and he's not just saying, I love you, won't you come to me? He, no, he's saying, I got you now, baby. <laughs> Back to Psalm 22, we're not done yet. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. This is really turning around, isn't it? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families and nations shall bow before you, bow and worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations and all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust and even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. What were the final words of Christ on the cross? It is finished. It's the same words. It is accomplished. He has done it. Finish this phrase for me. It may look like I'm surrounded, but... <laughs> you knew the end of that verse from the beginning of it, didn't you? Because it's a famous song. What were the most famous songs of Jesus' day? The Psalms of David. So Jesus on that cross sings the first half of a song, telegraphing every verse after it, because so the people of Israel would know how that psalm ends up. So it's something a little bit more like this. It may look like I'm abandoned, but he's never hidden his face from me. Jesus, in his darkest moment, was compelled by love to sing a song that his friend David wrote. There's one song stuck in his head in that moment. And it began with the accusation of humanity against God, telegraphing the reality that God has never abandoned. 
a couple months ago, I, I talked about how, um, how awesome it is that Jesus drinks from Jacob's well, right? What an honor for Jacob. He smells like Mary's perfume, what, right? What an honor for Mary. And he tells the story, Mary's story, anywhere the gospel is told. How honoring is that? that uh, but in this, in this moment, the most important moment, the most painful moment, the, most, the pivotal moment in history, Jesus picks a song. Could you imagine David in that moment from the great cloud of witnesses watching his one thing? David's one thing, right? This one thing I desire, this beauty. He's actually seeing the, manifest, the incarnation of the beauty of God himself. In this, in this moment, David, from a great cloud of witnesses, is watching God reconcile humanity back to himself, and he begins to sing something, and David's like, what? No. He's, he's singing my song? Jesus so fully stepped into our darkness that he echoed our accusation against God so that we would be delivered of it. First Corinthians 2.8 says something really exciting. I love this verse so much. It says, if the rulers of this age knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. If the powers and principalities and the schemers incited by demon and Judas possessed by Satan, if they knew what they were doing, they would have never put that guy on the cross. See, Christ's humanity was the bait on the hook that put immortality into death. Christ's humanity was the swindle to get the grave to swallow love himself. You see, the great swindler of Genesis chapter 3 has finally met a more cunning foe than himself. Satan, who knows scripture so well, probably should have meditated a little bit longer on the one that says, love is stronger than death. The grave can't overwhelm it. And oh boy, he put love down there. What he did in that moment is he turned the grave into a pipe bomb and the exploding element was the burning love of Christ. Knocked the gate right off the hinges. After Jesus breathed his last and the earthquake opened some tombs, another earthquake happened, didn't it? When an angel of the Lord came close. It rolled back the stone. Sitting there, he's saying, he's not here. He's risen. Could you imagine that angel in that moment seeing Jesus' best friends come and get this realization for themselves? How exciting it must have been in that moment. Mary, who was delivered of seven demons and finally found a home in the community of Jesus as one of the first ones to get there. And with all of her fears and accusations and grievances against God melted away when Jesus said, Mary. 
And she fell at the feet of the gardener and he's saying, don't, don't, don't cling to me yet. Don't cling to me. I haven't, I haven't yet arisen to the father. And she, all the hope has returned. Her savior is alive. He's not a liar. God has not abandoned him to the grave. We spent all this time in, in Psalm 22 because I wanted to unveil the prophetic imagery of the cross, but check out what Psalm 22 does for Psalm 23. As you're just walking through Psalm 22 and you hit Psalm 23, what happens then? The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I shall not want, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for why? You, this is the son saying to the father, you're with me. And you prepare a table before me, before the presence, in the presence of my enemies. It goes on to say, surely in goodness, they're gonna follow me. I'm gonna dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's getting really good, isn't it? Well, get this. Check out how it leads right into Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord. Verse seven says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Why? The king of glory is coming in to the mountain of the heavenlies. And he carried us on his back into that very presence of God. After passing through the death of Psalm 22 and the valley of the shadow of Psalm 23, Jesus and the rest of us can now shout, even in the valley, even in the hard parts, you're with me. Even when it feels like I'm surrounded by enemies, I know that I'm more closely surrounded and defended by you. See, the whole hidden scheme and dream of the Trinity was to defeat the works of Satan, the greatest work being death, freeing us from our fear of death, escorting us out of the slavery that we were under because of our fear of death carrying away the sins of the world to heal us and win our hearts back to dad. Unfortunately, we've twisted scripture into something that has caused us to withhold our affection from the one who went to the greatest lengths to earn our affection. Brothers and sisters, for those who belong to Christ, every dark Friday leads to the brightest Sunday. Every valley leads back to the mountain of everlasting gates. We can let go of our accusations against the Father. Because Jesus entered that very accusation and proved to us that it holds no weight, that it doesn't resemble the truth at all, and that Abba doesn't have an abandoning bone in his body. You guys want to get delivered together? <laughs> half of you got excited, half of you got scared. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it is his kindness that leads us to what? So deliverance is encounters with his kindness. Can we encounter his kindness together? Would you stand up with me? We're ending here, but I want to I pray with you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray over you. And this is for me too. You'll see that my hands are, are like this because I want to receive more freedom from the Lord also. Maybe, maybe you position yourself like this. Jesus, we thank you. You're not only risen, but you walked our very path. You took on our darkness. You took on our accusations. You went down every path that we will ever walk, that any human has ever walked and ever will walk. You were tempted in every way, and yet were without sin. You were made like us in every way. We have flesh and blood, so you took on flesh and blood, that you might take the power of him who holds the power of death and destroy him. And deliver us all from the grasp of Satan that we had through our fear of death. Thank you, Jesus, that you triumphed over every principality and power, making a public spectacle of them by the cross. You swindled every swindler, Jesus. And you bought us back, your children. You ransomed us out of darkness and into light. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only perfectly revealed the Father, but you perfectly revealed the life that we're meant to live with the Father. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, that you showed us that you only do what you see the Father doing. You only say what you hear the Father saying. You are the very radiance of the Godhead, the exact representation of his nature and now the Father is speaking to us through the Son. So right now I pray for my friends in this room that our, the eyes of our heart would be open, the ears of our heart would be open, that we would hear you, we would see you more rightly, that you would bring us into new levels of freedom and trust in you, that you would dismantle every fear that has brought symptomatic dysfunction into our lives. You would go to the very root We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to show us the smiling face of our God, to feel the loving embrace of our Father. We say, blood of Christ, inebriate me. I don't know why I was worried when I could have been drunk on you. Blood of Christ. Blood of Christ. Blood of Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for the families in this room. We pray that such an atmosphere of affection would invade our homes today as we celebrate your resurrection. We pray for those in our family who are lost and cannot see you right now, that their eyes would be open, that you would do for them what you've done for us. We pray that today would be the start of a great turning to you, unlike anything we've ever seen. We pray that as every church in this nation and around the world is observing and recognizing what you've done, that it would infect us. It wouldn't be just something that we know about you. It would be something that we feel from you, God. 
We wouldn't just know about your love, but we would feel your love. And it would work its way through our families, through our schools, through our community. We pray for revival, that the ripples of your love would start here and never stop. And we pray all of this in the mighty, resurrected name of Jesus, the name at at which every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that say it with me, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen, guys. (laughs) 